Three-dimensional living. We're talking about our relationship, the relationship that Jesus modeled. His relationship with the Father, our relationship with one another, and our relationship to the world. Jesus builds the church, but he builds the church with us, not apart from us. So remember, the church isn't this building. You are the church. And so I made a statement last week that Jesus didn't call us to build the church. He called us to make disciples. But in saying that, we need to understand that Jesus doesn't build the church apart from us because we are. i got to stay behind this thing. See, I, I'm going to have to be careful not to walk around today because I'll get a big buzz here. And, uh, hurt your ears. Jesus, call, he, he builds the church with us, not apart from us. So making disciples is building the church. That's how we, building the church isn't building buildings. It's not, it's not a lot of the things that we associate. It is building the kingdom. It is making disciples. And so Jesus doesn't build the church apart from us. He uses us as we become disciples and as we make disciples, as we do the work of ministry, where? In our church buildings and outside our church buildings. In our weekly gatherings for worship, as we fellowship together outside of this campus, in our homes, as we pay our tithes, as we give our time, as we devote ourselves to love God and to love one another, as we live and invite others into our normal, everyday lives. This is how we make disciples. This is how we do ministry. Ministry, doing ministry could be back there volunteering with children and doing children's church ministry. It could be up here singing on the worship team, but, but that doesn't mean you're not doing ministry. Because if that's the only ministry these people do is when they're singing on the worship team or volunteering in the children's church ministry, then, then they have totally misunderstood what it means to do the work of ministry. Because every day in our jobs, in our mundane lives, every day we do the work of ministry because we manifest the life and the love and the character and the nature of Christ through our lives, through the small things and through the great things. And so this is how Jesus is building his church. And this is how we are joyful members or instruments or tools that he uses to accomplish his work. If I'm going to build uh, a shelf for my wife, I use my hand. Thank God we have hands to use to swing hammers and to use drills and to saw boards. I'm building something, but I'm using the members of my body to do it. Jesus is building something, but he uses the members of his body to do it. That's you and I. So this is not a picture. This, is, this picture is not one in which we all sit while Jesus does the work apart from us. The picture is of Christ, the head of the body, directing and empowering the members to do the work they are created and called to perform as they're joined together in him. So the hand builds holding the hammer or holding the stone. The arms and the legs and the feet build, but not in themselves. They build as part of the body under the direction of the head, carrying the hand with the hammer to the place that it's going to swing and make a difference. Christ has chosen us 
in the building of his church, both as lively stones and as hands and as feet or as members of his body. And that building takes place in the constant living of our lives. Amen? So Jesus builds the church, but he builds with us, not apart from us. So we're going to talk a lot about mission. So if mission is to become a lifestyle, then ministry must be understood as a part of mission. I believe that we can do ministry and miss our mission. But if we purpose to do the mission God has called us to do, we cannot help but do all of the ministry that God wants us to do. If we do ministry apart from mission, separated instead of a part of, you see the difference? Not apart from, but a part of mission. We may be busy doing things, but not fruitful things. You can be doing all kinds of things. You can spend all the hours of your day doing all kinds of good works, but that does not necessarily mean you are fulfilling the mission God has called you to or God has called the church to. But if we are purposeful and prayerful, and go back to the scripture and say, God, what is the mission you have called us to as the church? And we are faithful to that mission, then the ministry that we do is going to be fruitful. It's going to make a real difference. We can do a lot of things and feel good about ourselves. But that does not necessarily mean that we're being fruitful in everything that we're doing. God calls us to be fruitful. Read John 15 very clear. This is how the Father is glorified, by the fruit that is produced through the branches. So we might be busy doing things, but they may not be the fruitful things. We're called to do the work of ministry, but we must understand that the work of ministry must flow from the mission and to be and to make disciples. In the making, the becoming and the making of disciples. If you are a disciple, you are called to make disciples. And that process of becoming and making disciples culminates in the ultimate purpose that all things have. Do you know what that ultimate purpose is? That ultimate purpose is to bring glory to God. Jesus said, by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. It's no accident that the last thing he told his disciples was to go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations. This is the fruit that God wants. <clears throat> and in going and fulfilling that mission, we are glorifying the Father. This is the chief end of everything that we do, that God be glorified. Amen? Amen. So ministry is always a part of mission, but never separated from mission. Our ministry has to flow from our mission. So what determines ministry? Mission determines ministry. We might be doing something that seems really good, but if it's not consistent with the mission God's called us to, then we shouldn't be doing it. So mission has to determine ministry. And our mission is to make disciples, and so... Fill the earth. Look, go, let me see if I can find the scripture. It's an Old Testament scripture. And we quote it. Uh, when I get there, I'll tell you where it is.
Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. Look at this scripture with me. It says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now we already know if we... If we're good disciples and we've, we've been studying our New Testaments, we know where the glory of God is seen and known. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God has shown a light in our heart that we might see the, 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 the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That we might have the knowledge of the glory of God where in the face of Jesus Christ. So where is the glory of God seen and known and manifest? In the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the glory of God. The Old Testament prophet Habakkuk writes for the earth. He's prophesying. He's saying there is coming a day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How is that knowledge going to fill the earth? It's going to fill the earth as the people of God fill the earth. As the people with the knowledge of Jesus fill the earth. The knowledge of the... This is why Jesus commanded us, go therefore and make disciples. This is exactly why he said make disciples. Because in making disciples, what are we doing? We are revealing to them, we are making known to them Jesus Christ. And making known to them, we are making known to them the glory of God. As we make known to them the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and they go out and do what disciples do and obey the command of Jesus and, and continue to make disciples, what's happening? The earth is being filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. See, that's why we've got to understand this is not just about us. We get great benefit. Listen, from obeying the commands of Jesus, we get great benefit of being disciples and making disciples. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. I mean, what God has provided for us and what He does provide for us in Jesus Christ is beyond our comprehension. But we can never come to the place where we begin to think that this is just about us. This is about Him. And we have a mandate and we have a commission and we have a command and it is to make known Jesus Christ. Indeed, it is to do exactly what the prophet said would happen. It is to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God. That means that we are going to fill the earth with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We are the people of God called to do that. That is our mission. That is how God will be glorified. This is our mission to make known Jesus. And so... The work of ministry is not then simply establishing just busy things, programs, activities, and things. More church services. We can get them in church, you know, every night of the week, then we make sure the devil can't get them and they're not out sinning. No, that's the wrong attitude. We're not trying to create a bubble in a safe zone where the church can hide out until Jesus comes back. Listen, we've been called to go into the world, into the darkness, into the into and among the wolves and the lions and the bears, the things that want to eat us up and harm us. We've been called to go out into that and be salt and light and see a transformation and a change take place that God would use us to bring about a transformation in the earth, that He would use us 
to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, even as the waters cover the sea. This is what we're called to. This is what we are commanded to do. So the work of ministry is the church walking out its mission. It's preaching and teaching and serving and working and giving and receiving. It's organic and it's structured. It's weekly worship. It's daily life. It's all that goes into our life and our life together as a body. It's every aspect. Every aspect of that. That God is Lord. Jesus is Lord of everything. Not just Sunday morning. He is Lord of Monday morning. You get up and go to work in the morning. He is Lord. Your work is just as sacred as your time here. Because you're giving a witness of Christ. Whether you realize it or not. When you go out into the world. You're giving a witness of Christ. What witness are you giving? As you go out and share your life. You're making disciples. The question is what kind of disciples are you making? What are you communicating to them? I, I, just, I just read something from someone said, my Saturday night is mine to do what I want. And I'll, I'll, Sunday morning, I'll make things right with God. Saturday night is mine. We laugh, but I'm telling you what, that's, that's the way the world thinks. And unfortunately, that's the way a lot of the church thinks. As long as I'm there on Sunday morning paying my dues, I'm okay. No, that's not what God's called us to. That's not discipleship. Those aren't disciples. Disciples never... They never are relieved of that calling. Never. It's eternal. So think of the doctrine of the Trinity. God is one, yet in that one God there are three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are distinct, yet they do not exist or function as separate, disconnected persons. They share the same life. They function perfectly as three in one. When we talk about three-dimensional living, this is the way we need to understand our relation with the Father, our relation with one another, and our relation with the world. These aren't three separate things, and I'm going to do, I'm going to do this one for you know, a few days, then I'll come back over here and do this other one for a few days, keep it balanced out. Let's see. 365 days, that's too hard to divide that. Let's just say 360 days in a year. If I divide that equally by three, then no, that's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. Three-dimensional living is not three disconnected directions of relationship. We don't separate or disassociate these relationships. They are three distinct directions, but they do not function or exist separate or apart from the other. They function together to accomplish one ultimate purpose, and that is to magnify Christ and glorify the Father. You can't, this is why when we read 1 John, John says, if you don't love your brother, the love of God's not in you. This is why John says, you, you can't say that you love God, but then I'm over here hating my brother. You can't do it. You say, well, you know, God, I've got two of the three relationships down pat. I just don't happen to like my brother over here. No, it doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. These three operate and function as one to, to achieve the same purpose. So let's talk about this up relation to the Father, the relation to and intimacy with the Father. 
Go to 1 John. Let's go over to 1 John. Because as we talk about our relationship with the Father, our relationship to the Father, I, I want to remind you of what John writes to us in his little letter here. 1 John chapter uh, 4, verse 19. This is an extremely important verse that you should never, ever forget. If you forget a lot of things, don't forget this truth. We love him because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. That's a good verse for you to memorize. We love him because he first loved us. And the reason I want to stress that, and the reason I want to begin with that, because we're, we're going to talk about our relation to the Father and our intimacy with the Father, and we're going to talk about loving God. But if we're not careful, we'll, we'll start to understand that and think of that and operate in that from the point of view that, that boy, I've got all this love for God, and I'm just, boy, I'm, look at me, I'm just loving God. I'm so great. I have so much love for God. Lest I forget the only way I can love him is because he first loved me. We have no love for the Father until the Father loves us. God is love. So whatever love we have to offer, if it's not God, if it's not agape, if it's not God's love, it's, it's, it's not the love that we're commanded to love with. Amen? So we'll begin our talk about the up-dimension of relationship with the Father with the word obedience, to obey God. We all, we all get this. We all know what obedience means. And we can be deceived into thinking that our sacrifices for God satisfy Him. This is why people get real busy doing churchy stuff. They think the more busy they are doing churchy stuff, the more pleasing they are to God. Well, God, look at how much time I'm sacrificing for you. God, look at how much money I'm giving for you. I'm going to tell you what, God could care less. If what we're doing is not done first and foremost out of love for Him, and it's not in concert with, in, in unison with His mission. 1 Samuel 15.22 so Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Saul thought he was doing a great thing. He sacrificed, getting ready to go to battle. The problem is he disobeyed God. He, he, he offered a sacrifice to God, but his heart wasn't right. He did it for the wrong reasons. It was selfish. It was self-centered. It was all about him. Samuel came and said, hey, man, appreciate the sacrifice and all, but God really doesn't care about your sacrifice. He wants your obedience. And you all know what happened to Saul. It wasn't a good ending. So God's not pleased with just our sacrifices of time or money or anything else we don't obey and heed his command. And there's a larger danger of placing value on ministry above the person of Jesus. Let me say that again. There's a danger of placing value on ministry, our works, all that we do for God, above the person of Jesus. Christians are notorious for this. 
Because we get lost in our service. We get lost in our busyness. And the answer is we keep adding programs and things. And, well, we got more people. Let's, let's create this and get, plug them in and get them busy. And, but we never stop to find out if what we're plugging them into is really accomplishing the mission of God. We just think as long as they're busy doing churchy things, then, then you know, it's all good to go. No, not necessarily. Because we shouldn't be pointing them to, to things. We shouldn't be pointing them to, to works. We should be pointing them to Jesus. What they first and foremost have to do is surrender their heart to Jesus, pour their heart out to Jesus, to love Him above and beyond everything else, and let everything else they do from that flow from that. So there's this danger of placing value on ministry above the person of Jesus. God didn't call us to love first our ministries or our volunteer opportunities or our good works. God commands us first to love Him. Then love for everything else. We should love the things that we put our hands to. A farmer should love plowing his field. Otherwise, I'm not sure why he's a farmer. Now, I'm not saying it's not hard sometimes. It's not inconvenient sometimes. But I would venture to say that people that do Farmers who farm, they farm because there's something about it that they love. So we should love what we do. We should find joy in fulfillment. This is why the Bible says your gift will make a way for you. God gifts us in certain ways. He molds us and gives us certain bents and inclinations. And we should, we should follow those, I believe, because that's the way God made us. And we should find joy when we participate in those things, but, but the thing should never become the object of our affection. It is the Lord who made us and created us and gave us that privilege to be able to fulfill what he created us to do. Amen? Amen. So true disciples not only love Jesus, they obey his commands. Matthew 22. And this, this really goes to the heart of, of our text. Let's read this together. Matthew 22, 37. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. 37. Teacher, God comes, he says, Jesus, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Verse 37. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what's interesting there we don't see it here, but what would have been very obvious to the Jews Jesus was talking to. What is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God. Do you know what the verse right above that is in Deuteronomy chapter 6? It's what's known as the Shema. It's the foundation of, of all of Jewish belief. Do you know there's only three monotheistic religions in the world? <coughs> Islam, Judaism, and Christianity are monotheistic religions. In other words, they only believe in one God. All the rest are pantheistic. They believe in more than one God. And this is Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. This is the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And they said, very good, Jesus. We are to love God with all of our heart, with all of our strength, with all of our soul, with all of our mind to love God. This is what we are commanded. This is the greatest commandment. How are we going to love God? How are we going to do that? Remember? So I gave you 1 John 4, 19 first. How, are you, how can you do that? You can't do that until what? Until he loves you first. We love him because he first loved us. So whatever love for God you have, it's because God loved you. So we can't take credit for the love we have for God. We've got to give it right back to God because we love him because he first loved us. When it's, this is why in Revelation we see the picture of, of those casting their crowns back at the feet of Jesus. Because whatever we accomplish, whatever we do, when it's all said and done, we're going to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that whatever it is that we have done in this life, we have done it by the grace of God, and we did not do it apart from Him. Cast your crowns right back at His feet. There is no credit that goes to us. Yet we are commanded to love God with all that we have within us. This is the greatest commandment. Go to John 15. Let's, let's go and look at the words of Jesus here, talking to his disciples just before he is arrested. John 15, 8. Remember what Samuel told Saul to obey is better than sacrifice. John 15, 8. Jesus says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Disciples make what? Disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Does God want our joy to be full? Yes. When? When we get to heaven one day or right here, right now? Right here and right now. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Now let's turn back to the Gospel of Matthew. Let's look at the parting words of Jesus to his disciples recorded in Matthew chapter 28. Remember, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Go, 
therefore, and make disciples. Let's say that again. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That is a direct command Jesus has given to us. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That means in everything that we do, we have an underlying command here to make disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Now that doesn't mean you've got to become obnoxious on your job and carry tracks stuffed in your pockets, leaving them at every cubicle you pass and every counter on the bathroom and you get caught in the ladies' bathroom because you're trying to put tracks on there. No. We're not called to be obnoxious. We're called to be disciples. And we're called. It, it, being a disciple of Jesus must become just as natural as, as anything else we do. So that when we talk to those around us, there is something about our communication that witnesses to the love and the nature of Christ. So that people begin to ask us, what? What do you believe? Or how, how are you so, why are you so different than everybody else? Now, it doesn't mean we don't ever reach out and witness to them. I'm just saying, if, if we will just begin to abide in Christ and abide in his word and, and just love him with the love of God that's been poured out in our hearts and ask him, to help us and to teach us and to take advantage of the opportunities that we have with one another on Sunday morning or Wednesday night or whenever else. And we begin to, to yearn for that and desire that. Not just that we're busy for God doing something so I can say I'm doing work for Jesus. Listen, he didn't call us to do work for him. He called us to do something specific, not just in general, specific. So that all the work that I do for him should contribute to this thing that I am as a disciple, communicating that truth, living that truth, making known that truth, and I am making disciples. Now, I know there's lots of questions, but don't, don't make this complicated. We're going to talk about just some real simple things as we go through this in the weeks to come. But we need to understand what we've been called to and why we've been called to that. Why has God commanded his people, his disciples, to make disciples? Let's go back to the prophet. Because the prophet declared by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there's coming a day when the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And that is going to happen and has been happening by the people of God going out and obeying the command their Lord has given them. To go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. So this is our commission. This is our command. If we confess to be followers of Christ before we can talk about our intimate relation with the Father, we must answer the question concerning our obedience. Do we love the person of Jesus more than our work for Him? I'm talking to you as believers. Do you love the person of Jesus more than the work you do for Him? It's easy to get caught up in the, in the works. I love what I do. I love being a pastor. I love preaching. I love teaching. I love it. The question is, do I love Jesus more than I love 
what I'm doing. I think I should love what I'm doing or I shouldn't be doing it. I think you should love what you're doing or you shouldn't be doing it. But as much as you love what you're doing, do you love him more? And are you allowing him to dictate and to direct? Are you willing to submit the sacrifice if necessary to walk in obedience to his command as a disciple? So do we love the person of Jesus more than anything else? Now, are we willing to sacrifice what is good for what is preeminent and what is best? There are a lot of good things that we can do, but are they preeminent and are they best? Or here's a real simple way to think of it. Is it fruitful? It might be good, but is it producing fruit for the kingdom? Is it producing fruit? Is it making disciples? Is it doing what Jesus has commanded us to do? You realize time is a finite commodity. We've all been given 24 hours in every day. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, young or old. It doesn't matter, literate or illiterate. We only have 24 hours in a day, and our life is a finite span of time on this earth. What are we doing with our time? And we need to make sure that we're spending our time in the most fruitful way possible, not just deceiving ourselves into thinking that what we're doing is good, Don't ask whether it's good. Ask if it's bearing fruit. Is what we are doing producing fruit for the kingdom? Are we producing disciples? So we're commanded to be and to make disciples. And that must begin with, number one, loving God with complete abandon. Loving God with complete abandon. When does your love for God become dangerous for you? Just go there in your mind. What if God asked me to... Boy, that would be scary. But if God asked you to do that scary thing, would you be willing to do it? Because your love for Him is that great. Number two is loving one another with the self-sacrificial love of Christ. Husbands... We are called to lay our lives down for our wives the way Christ laid down his life for the church. Are we willing to do that? Or employee, when your employer demands something totally and completely unreasonable, does something in you want to rise up and just rebel against that? Or does... The love of Christ and the mind of Christ and the submission that Christ showed you caused you to just say, you know what? I'm going to humble myself in the obedience of Christ. Now, I'm not talking about him asking you to do something that would violate the law or violate the commandment of God. I'm just saying, you know, sometimes how our pride rises up. Like, you know what? I did that all Last month, I shouldn't have to. Somebody else ought to do that. Maybe they should. But can we humble ourselves and submit ourselves and be faithful servants and trust God to use those things? Number three is obeying His command to the cost of our own life. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be physically martyred for your faith. Chances of that happening in America are slim to none, probably at least in the foreseeable future. But but are we willing 
to lay down our life? Are we willing to sacrifice our life for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the command to make disciples, to fulfill the commandment of God? Do you have a heart and a passion to see God move in this community? Are you willing to sacrifice your life so that you can be a part of that, so that you can be a part of the kingdom work that might require some sacrifices, laying down our life? Can we, can we do that in obedience to the Lord? And that all sounds pretty gloomy and kind of a bummer, but the point is, this should be our joy. The beginning and the end of this should be our joy, our greatest joy and His greatest glory. Can we find joy? That's why Jesus said, my commandments are not burdensome. If we don't understand who He is, if we're not submitted to who He is, if we haven't received that love, if we're just doing these things because I want to avoid hell, Come on, people, salvation is more than just avoiding hell. Salvation is the privilege God's given us to be a part of the work that He's doing in the earth. That we are active participants in causing the knowledge of the glory of God to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. We are making that happen right now. We're not just biding our time until we get to glory one day and we all get to heaven and we float around on clouds and I learn to play the harp and I can sing finally. No, that's not what it's about. There's a real work to be done on a real earth here. There's real transformation that God wants to, to affect in this real earth, in this real city, among this real people that we live in, among. He wants to do that. Do we find joy? When we think about that, does joy rise up? Does excitement rise up in our hearts and our minds? It should. If it doesn't, I'm going to encourage you to pray, to examine your heart, and ask God, God, why, why don't I feel that sense of excitement and joy that Pastor Jeff is talking about? In being involved in your work, in your kingdom work, and obeying your command to make disciples. Lord, I've I, I got to become a disciple before I can make a disciple. I want to, I want to, I want to know you, Lord. Does that, does that rise up in your heart? If it doesn't, I want you to talk to the Lord. I want you to get in the Word. I want you to begin to just talk to Him and ask Him to show you what's going on in your own heart. Amen? Amen. I want to read something to you. I know y'all are saying, it's 12 o'clock already. It's time to go. This really won't take long famous last words. It's this book, it's a very interesting little book, it has a lot of, a lot of um, I'm kind of a history buff, I love history and things that have to do with history. And, and uh, I was reading this section about the early church that I thought was really interesting. The question is this, how many Christians do you think there were just before Constantine, or how many Christians do you think there were in the year AD 100? In the year 8100, there were estimated to be about 25,000 Christians on earth. How many Christians do you think there were in AD 300? 200 years later. By AD 310, there were estimated to be 20 million Christians on earth. 
So in 200 years, we go from 20,000 to 20 million. That's a pretty sizable increase. Remember, they didn't have cars. They didn't have planes. They didn't have the Internet. They didn't have cell phones. Uh, if you wanted to get a letter from Jerusalem to Rome, you had to put it on a boat, and it took a while. Or you had to walk way around, and that took even longer. In 200 years, we went from 25,000 to 20 million Christians. Now, before you think about how amazing that is, I want you to consider this, these other little historical facts about the early church. Number one, they were an illegal religion throughout this period. At best, they were tolerated, but mostly they became severely persecuted. Number two, they didn't have any church buildings as we know them. Archaeologists have discovered chapels dating to this period, but they're usually small buildings that, that seem to be homes that were converted into chapels. They didn't even have the scriptures as we know them. I mean, these were letters being passed. They had the Old Testament scriptures. But the New Testament as we know it were letters being passed around. Not everybody had everything. They didn't have an institution or the professional form of leadership normally associated with it. So at times of relative calm, prototypical elements of institution did appear, but, but what we consider institutional, these were at best pre-institutional. They didn't have denominations. They didn't have these big hierarchies. It, it, it wasn't like it is today. Here's something else that's interesting. They didn't have seeker-sensitive services. They didn't have youth groups. They didn't have worship bands. They didn't have seminaries, and they didn't have commentaries. Man! No e-sword? I mean, at a touch of a button, I can just find any scripture I want. They didn't have any of that. And here's the last point. They actually made it hard to join the church. By the late 2nd century, aspiring converts had to undergo a significant initiation period to prove they were worthy. Yet, in spite of all of this, they went from 25,000 to 20 million. And as we would look at it today, they had every odd against them, and yet they still exponentially grew. I wonder how they did that. The Spirit of God. That's right. Because they obeyed the commands of Jesus. Because they did what Jesus told them to do. So I'm not saying that we should make it appear hard to become a Christian or a member of the church. But we should expect no less than Jesus or the early church did when it comes to the call to become a follower of Jesus. So the, the move today to water down, to compromise, to call what's evil good and what's good evil, we're not going to find that in the Scripture. We're going to find a command to stand in the truth, to stand for the truth, at our cost even. Cost the early church, many of them cost them their lives. That's why they were martyred, because they wouldn't bow to Caesar. Because Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is the one supreme God who we owe our allegiance to, not Caesar or not anybody else. So being a follower of Christ should supply for us, should provide for us a joy unspeakable and full of glory as the Bible describes it. There is a cost 
there is a cost to being a disciple. What, what I'm talking to you about is us as a church, as a body of people making a decision. How are we going to live out our Christianity? Are we going to live out our Christianity if we profess to be followers of Christ? Are we going to live this out the way Jesus commands us to live it out? Are we going to walk it out the way the Bible teaches us to walk it out? Or are we going to just go along to get along? Are we going to be content with being spectators and coming and leaving? I'm telling you, don't be content with being a spectator. Don't think that this is not something you... I can hear people right now going, I can't do this. Listen, if you couldn't do this, God would not have saved you. If you're saved right now, and you're saying, I I can't do this, no. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. God didn't save you for something you can't do. God saved you to do what he commanded you to do. God saved us and made us the church, the called out assembly His people. He he called us out. He saved us that we would go and do what He's commanded us to do. And He's not going to ask us to do something that we're not capable of doing. This is why He says, you can do all things through Christ. Paul wrote those words. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. That's why the angel said to Mary, with God, all things are possible. This is who our Savior is. Death could not hold him in the grave. Why would we believe that we cannot go out and walk this walk of faith and live this life of faith and fulfill what Jesus has commanded us to do? We can do it. We just have to change our way of thinking. Because we're not used to thinking this way. We're used to just coming in one day a week and sitting in church and feeling good about it. Coming on Wednesday if we've got time to do it, you know, and There's nothing wrong with that except that that's really not what Jesus commanded us to do. Because what are you doing the rest of the time? Where's your mind the rest of the time? Whether you're at home or on the job, where is your mind? Is your mind on mission with God? Is your mind thinking about? I'm not saying that you, you find no joy in anything you do. I'm saying you find joy in everything you do because everything you do is part of what God has commanded you to do and commanded you to be as a disciple. From the, the most mundane task of life to the, to the exceptional things we get to be a part of, we should find our greatest joy every day in living in Christ and manifesting that life. This is what God's called us to do. That means that we've got to go from this model of 20% participation and 80% spectator Passive participation. You're participating by being here. We're now, this is, our focus is not about what happens on Sunday morning. Our focus really needs to become what happens Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. That needs to become our focus. So that we flip that passive participation around where now we have the small number. The exception is we have passive participants. But the vast majority of the church is out on mission doing what God's called them to do. And that's going to look different for everybody. 
But it's got to start with a desire. And we begin to ask God, God, show me. God, help me. Give me the grace, God, to do this. This is what we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks. I'll just be honest with you, probably spend all year talking about this. Because there's got to be a change in the culture. There's got to be a change in the way we think. Your Christianity has got to become conformed to the Christianity we read about in the Bible. Because we are called to be conformed to the Savior we read about in the Bible. How can we be conformed to the Savior, yet our Christianity, the way we walk it out, not be conformed to the way Jesus walked out His? So we can't have one and not the other. It's got to be both. We've got to have it all. And here's the good news. We can have it all in Christ. Amen? Now, it may cost you. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm saying it's hard. But there is no greater adventure, there is no greater journey that we could possibly embark on than this journey of faith God's called us to. Amen? Amen. To be His church, to be His people, to be a part of filling the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God. Hallelujah. Let's all stand. Father, I thank you for this this time together today. Lord, I thank you for all the prayers that were prayed. Lord, whatever the needs were, whatever the prayers that were prayed, we thank you, Lord, that, Lord, in Christ Jesus, you hear our prayers, that you made a way for us to come boldly to the very throne of grace by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for all that you provided for us in Christ. Father, as we have declared your word today as we've talked about what you have commanded us to do, who you've commanded us to be as your church, as your people. God, I pray that we would go from this place with the grace of God upon our lives to walk that out. Father, if there are those here who are wondering, Father God, how how they could possibly do these things that may seem too intimidating, too overwhelming, Father, I just pray peace right now. Lord, I just say peace be still. And know that He is Lord of all. He is Lord of every area of our life. And God did not save us and command us to do something that we are not capable of doing. God, if we'll just release our own abilities to You and trust in Your ability and Your grace that gives us the ability we need. Father, we can walk in obedience. Manifest your life. Be transformed and see transformation come to those those you put in our lives. Father, we're trusting that. We're believing for that. We pray for our city, our state, our nation. We pray for the church. You would do your work as only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.